Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Hello, hello. Welcome to Bell Curve, everyone. I'm your host, Rachel Breyers, joined by just one of my co-hosts today, Mary Scott Hunter. Liz will be back next week. And y'all, I am very excited about today's episode because we've talked a bit on Bell Curve about how to increase happiness, maybe through good health habits like exercise or just getting around great people in community. And today we are talking to someone who symbolizes both of those practices that I've sought in my life the past year because our guest is someone wonderful who I love to be around because she makes me a better person who I met in a body pump exercise. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) You're way too excited about that. I really am. I really, we just came from a workout class. So her name is Merle Phillip, or we should say Chef Merle. And Chef Merle has just a fascinating background in life. And coming up, she has an incredible opportunity at the White House that we're going to talk about in a minute. But first, let me just say welcome to Bell Curve, Merle. Thank you, Rachel. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's also a really cool episode because I know Chef Merle from the context of my exercise class, but Mary Scott and Merle know each other from a different context. Yeah, yeah we go way back when Lester ran for Congress. Yep, in 2010. Ago. And yes. I was running for the State Board mm-hmm. of Education of Alabama, and he was running for Congress and got to know you and your beautiful family. And then you also have been a chef for an executive chef at Intuitive, uh, the company where I work. So super cool. You're such an awesome, talented lady. And Thank we you are for so many accolades, boy. I need to have you all as my, <laughs> as my hype team, you know, when you go and do something. Oh, there people. is no hype necessary. You, are, you are the real deal. And, and, and it's cold outside and it's getting into the holidays and we're sitting around Rachel's table at her beautiful home. And oh my goodness, what could be better than this? Well, and part of why I love to talk to Merle so much is that she really expands my thinking and helps me realize when I'm sort of jumping to conclusions or maybe even relying on a stereotype. For example, early on when I was getting to know Merle, she said at a workout class, this kind of, I, I, like, I wasn't expecting this because, you know, you know people in different contexts. She said, oh, I heard you on the Dale Jackson show this morning. Great job. <laughs> And for our listeners in other states, Dale Jackson is a conservative talk radio host in Alabama, sort of a state firebrand. Mary Scott and I have both been guests on his show different times, and we really love him. But I was very surprised to learn that Merle listens to Dale Jackson because I didn't know her well yet and was making a quick assumption, which we really should never do, about her political leanings based on demographics. But that's not uncommon, though. People do that. Yeah, so I want to ask you, Merle, how would you describe yourself? And that sounds like it's probably happened to you a lot. So tell, tell me a little bit about who you are, your background, and why that would have surprised me. So typically, when you, he- when you see an African-American female, especially here in Alabama, people assume that you're a Democrat, which is okay. They can assume that, except I've always learned you should never judge a book by its cover Mm. because you just don't know. A little background, I was born and raised in Montclair, New Jersey, which is about 40 miles west of Manhattan, which I, and I grew up with pretty democratic parents, but I don't know that they would be quite so in this day and age. And I think that when people meet me, they automatically assume 
that I'm a Democrat. But growing up, I probably was a little bit more, a lot more liberal. And it's over the years and maturing and really seeing how this country is changing. And I will give my husband credit because if I don't, he's going to have a fit. He did have, <laughs> he has been a, a conservative Republican for most of his life. And I think through our marriage of 35 years, yes, some of what he is has worn off. But, you know, people made those kind of assumptions, especially when he was running for office, especially if they had if we hadn't met before. And then when they meet, they're just surprised because they didn't know. And they would say, oh, there's no such thing as a conservative African-American couple. And I said, well, we're standing right here. (laughs) Uh, So, yes, it's a bit of a unicorn. And maybe people didn't know quite what to do with that. But I think the tide is changing. There's a lot more African-Americans who are part of the walk away movement. I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube and read Mm -hmm. about it. They're sort of walking away from the old Democratic guard, which is surprising, but not surprising. It's happening. And, And I often say to people, it's safe to come out of the closet. You can embrace who you are. I will say, though, that I was slightly vilified by a lot of other African-Americans who are from here in Huntsville, especially when I had my restaurant. So I was in the public forum, both politically and professionally. And uh, there were lots of people who didn't want to have anything to do with me simply because of that. What do you think was going through their minds with that vilification? Well, you know, it's that typical Uncle Tom kind of a situation. Oh, you're a sellout or whatever. People are going to say what they're going to say. It doesn't really matter. I just think it's very small-minded of them not to get to know me as a person or my husband as a person or our family because just because you don't think in lockstep, that's where the division begins. And that's sort of the problems that we encountered. Well, it was never a problem for me. It was more a problem for them. They couldn't wrap their head around it. You know, you're a sellout. You're not, you know, why aren't you voting like we all do? The the black community is not monolithic. People think it is, but it's really not. And I'm finding more people are a bit more bold now. And they're voting with their families in mind. They're voting with their pocketbooks, which is really what you should do. And I will tell you this, when we were campaigning, one of the things when we would go door to door or meet people during the congressional race, I would tell people, when making reference to my husband, I would say, you know what, let's just forget about the D or the R behind people's names and let's take a look at the message. You know, if your message is salient and it resonates with people, I think that that's more important now. Obviously, there's been a toe in the sand now. You really have to declare Democrat or Republican. And now you really have to because there's a lot of militancy mm-hmm. on one side. So the I'm edges, sure you the found edges that. are pulling are, are very polarizing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there comes a point where you have to kind of put that aside and you have to look at what's best for this country, what's best for your family. And without getting too deep into the political side of things, I think it's pretty aware there's a lot of division in this country and people need to get past that. We're supposed to be a united front, which is going to be hard because there's a lot of folks working that don't want that. unity these days. No, there's not. There's not. (laughs) You know, uh, do you find that you find yourself just because I'm a Republican, I, I, I don't like every Republican I meet. Sure. And you don't dislike every Democrat that you meet. That's right. I I don't, there's a lot of Democrats. I don't, I count many Democrats among my personal friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I find that uh, today I am apologizing or, or I feel apologetic a lot for some of the things that are said by members of my party. 
and from the top down from the top down and it makes me i'm a republican because that's where my principles are that's Mm -hmm. that's that that is where i that's where i am that's where Mm -hmm. i fall but it doesn't mean that i approve of the rhetoric it doesn't some of the rhetoric it doesn't mean that i approve of some of the behaviors it doesn't mean that i agree with every single aspect of the republican platform i remember being asked have you read the republican platform well no you know i know (laughs) the big ones you know but it's, you have an interesting perspective, and I'm glad you're brave enough to raise it today because it's it's not a simple, straightforward thing. Are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Mm-hmm. It, it, you, people fall on balance, I think, on a certain side, and they may or may not approve of everything that is said or done. I will tell you that I had lots of interesting conversations on my recent trip to Europe with other Americans, with people from all over the med. What the media is saying about how Europeans, both French and Italian and Spaniards and all the people that I met, how they feel about Americans is not true. Hmm. Now, if you get out of some of the major cities, you're always going to find people who are very just bowed up about one thing or another. But more more times than not, The average people, some of our tour guides in different places, actually have a tremendous affinity for us. And that's not brought out in the media because the media wants to stir the pot because that makes them relevant. It keeps them relevant in their own minds to say that the rest of the world hates us. Well, it, that's the way that you get clicks. That's the Correct. way you get. That's what that's I meant by you, that that's way, Yeah, that's the way you get attention. And it's not enough to just have a, a, a time of peace and quiet. No, God and forbid. God forbid that quiet. we have some, you know, have some peace and quiet and prosperity and, and, and just kind of swim downstream for a little while. Right. I think that's why I get so annoyed with the Twitter mob, if we want to call it the Twitter mob, those folks don't actually represent a large percentage of Americans. And it's not. What I found to be the case, most people, and this isn't going to come as a surprise, most people that I met want to raise their children, take vacations, grill out with their friends. Mm, Yes. Decorate their house. Decorate their house and rinse and repeat. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they want to do. I don't care if they're from Set, France, where I was, some of the most wonderful people, little kids, I was told, in set, which is right there on the curve of the med, on American holidays, they plant flags in the cemetery. There's American servicemen who were buried there. Wow. So they go out to the cemeteries and they plant little American flags and they stand there and they sing the national anthem. Oh my goodness. Do you know how many of our own kids don't do that? These are young, like elementary school, little French kids who live in a very... Simple life, and that's what they do. Well, the United States and France have are long allies and have a yep. an intertwined history, especially since World War II. That absolutely, is, you know, and they're the blue, white, and red. We're the red, white, and blue. They're we go way back. We go way back. Our revolutions, you know, were intertwined. It was a mutual story. One interesting little factoid before we get off that: Did you realize that most of our wines that come from France have American roots? There was a parasite that killed all of the original grape, the grapevines in France, killed them all. So they had to come to the United States and get the original roots. And then they crossbred them and twisted them. Our roots and their roots were twisted together. So talk about intertwined, all that French wine has American roots. Just an interesting fact. Didn't know that. Yep. You would glam onto that piece at Madame Chef. (laughs) I know. Madame Chef Merle. That would would be be a great, 
It well, was. I, Hates of your I, history. I have to follow this thread a little bit. I mean, Mary Scott mentioned that she sometimes feels like she has to apologize for being a Republican. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes yeah, we feel like we have to apologize for being Southerners or Alabamians. Or if you happen to vote Republican, suddenly there's a connotation there. If you're from the South, that you're racist. So mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up that question. We're sitting here talking about how most people want to live their life. They love other people. They're not racist. But there's that sense that, well, you're, you're a white Southern Republican, you are racist. What, what is your experience living in the South? Do you think that those claims are, tell us about your experience of that. I'll be honest. Nobody that I have, now, not having grown up here, so I can look at it from both sides. I grew up in big metro. Northeast, you would think, you know, there's all kinds of people. There's racism everywhere. I don't care where you live. The South just has history. I have not felt overt, right? I mean, I've seen it. And I actually have seen it more within the black community than anywhere else towards me. Really? Oh, yeah. Can you kind of draw that out and explain what you mean? I'll give an example. And I have to go back to this political time. Not long after the primaries in 2010, there was a a large group of people, African-Americans, men, women of varying ages that came to my restaurant and they were sitting down. And and in business, you try not to bring in anything that is polarizing because at the end of the day, you're there to serve everybody. And it's business. You know, I don't care who you are. If you're coming to spend money with me, whatever. We need to keep that out of it. But people oftentimes, I tried to be a presence in my own establishment, tried to draw me into conversations, especially during that time, because it was right after the primaries. So naturally, my husband's face was, and my, we were plastered all over all kinds of things. There were African-American churches that turned their backs on us, which I don't really care, but I was surpri- that was a little bit surprising. But there was a group of people who came into the restaurant, and they were talking about something. I can't remember what the topic was, but it was something about the way African-Americans are treated in general. And why, why are we always, you know, at the short end of the stick? You know, that kind of woe is me situation. And I'm a little tired of that because I believe that you can either use that as an excuse or you can rise above that. You know, I was always raised, you know, my father was a medic in World War II, practiced medicine for 50 years. My mother has a master's in education. We were raised just to do. You don't worry about what the things are going to be against you. You persevere and education and exposure are are the great equalizers, which is very true. So anyway, they were talking about all these things. Why can't, you know, somebody done somebody wrong song kind of a situation. And they kept asking me as I was passing through my, the dining room, oh, what do you think about this? And I really didn't want to engage Because I'm thinking, you know, my brain is telling me, shut up, shut up, don't answer. (laughs) This is a place of business. This is your place of business. Don't talk. Until they started, for whatever reason, one or two people at the table realized the connection between myself and my husband and that he had just recently run for office. And they decided to bring that up. In other words, oh, well, you should, and I'm taking this somewhat out of context, but you should know about what it's like to be an Uncle Tom. And I was that shut up in your head. And I was like, you know, well, let me just turn around and go in the kitchen. So I, I turned around and the better side of me said, don't speak. But the big mouth side of me walked <laughs> up to the table. There's about 25 or 30 people there. And I said, you know, 
All I've heard you all do is complain about what you don't have and what's going on. I said, if you would just get off the mental plantation, your lives would be so much better. And then you could really see what you can do instead of complaining about what you don't have. Let's talk about what you're going to do for yourselves instead of what the government isn't doing for you. Grow up. Needless to say, I never saw those people again. And I probably shouldn't have said it. So there are times, my point behind that long story was, I never had to have that kind of engagement with other racial groups, white, Indian, Asian, whatever. It was within the black community, which is typical. That's Sometimes typical. the the rejection that comes from within within one's party, you know, mm-hmm. losing a primary is is tough. The the you know, when you have fights with your family members, when you mm-hmm. Being being rejected from a group that you, you know, you you wouldn't identify with anyway, that's one thing. Um, or that may not identify you as a potential member of their group. But I'd, being being, I don't know that that betrayal from within. I think. But I've I, always felt that way mm. because I don't just as a person and growing up in the family that I did. When you're around successful, accomplished people, and not just first generation. I told my daughters recently, I said, did you all realize that you are fourth generation to go to college? Wow. There's a lot of people who can't say that. I mean, that goes way back. I said, there's no, ex- my point, there's no excuse for you not to look ahead. And I'm taking that conversation a bit out of context. But when you grow up in a very culturally diverse area, I grew up with all kinds of people. You know, there's people within your own social circles that aren't going to like you. There's people within your own racial. It doesn't really matter. I've always been comfortable in my own skin as far as that's concerned. And we've raised our children to be that way. My husband has a little different story. I mean, he's a, he's a naturalized American citizen. He was born in Trinidad. So he had to become an American citizen before he went to the Naval Academy. So his formative experiences, though he was raised in Baltimore... He wasn't born here, so he didn't have that same kind of experience. So, Merle, I'm going to say something right now that I've never said to you before, Uh but I'm going to say this, that when I I met Les, I love Les. Les is a a fantastic human being. You're not married. Well, he's a wonderful guy. And um, just have the best memories of getting to know him and the times when we were campaigning and in political meetings. And Mm -hmm. But I always thought, knowing you, why you didn't run. I, I always wondered about because you, you have so much moxie. You start businesses. Yes. You say what's on your mind. Strong. I have never known you not to say exactly what. But you, I do. What you believe. But I've been now, discerning you, enough to keep my mouth yes. shut, except for that one time in my restaurant because well, I couldn't. I, I agree. You're I discerning, and you understand your. You Boundaries. understand your. Well, no, you understand your your audiences. Yes, you understand yes. the settings that you're in. I've always, mm-hmm. under, but I always wondered. Did you ever consider running for political office? Because that it always struck me that you would make a very fine candidate as well. Hmm. I probably wouldn't make it because the the, the, the too- moment at the, the restaurant I come out again. <laughs> well, no, because Something tells me y'all are similar. You no, 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 no. Because I know that if I ever decided to really step into the fray, that I would. You have to know if you want if you want to win, or if you even want to be taken seriously. You have to throttle certain things back. I'll be honest. You're not the first person who has said that. Mm. I, I'm not surprised. I, I just, either. and I'm not saying that to say, ooh, because I really haven't had 
public office aspirations. I think you I need know, to you, use it in other ways. Well, uh, perfectly fine. But uh, but you, you know, you uh, the way that you supported Lester when he ran, starting the Eves, a fantastic restaurant, mm-hmm. and then transitioning to the executive chef. And I see you everywhere. You know, at every fancy party, at every event. I mean, it's got to be okay. It's by been a lot of work. You know, I know. But, <laughs> it's I mean, a lot of work. But like, you're a, a staple here. Like, if it's going to be a fancy party. You know, and That's kind of uh, th- then then it's it's going to be Chef Merle, and I and it's no surprise that you're going to Washington D.C. to the White House to help them out with Christmas. I mean, I think you are one of these people that can do anything you set your mind to. Is well, what I'm I want to transition to that topic because we are also very interested in business, how you run a business, women-owned businesses, and big opportunities. And mm-hmm. Merle is headed to D.C. for the, a big opportunity. So tell us what it is you're doing. And then I want to come back and talk about what it was like to own and run a business as a mother, as a woman. Oh, we've so we talked get about some, that, Rachel. No, I want to hear it. I, I want to go into that. <laughs> so first of all, what, what are you doing in DC? Okay. So what, I will say one of the things that was on a bucket list for a long time, and I didn't really talk about it too much because usually bucket lists are things you sort of keep to yourself. I felt that I've always wanted to be a part of what was going on at the White House. Now, from a culinary perspective, it was just intrigued me. You know, all the state parties and everything that they do. And I had an opportunity to apply for this upcoming holiday season. And for those of you that maybe are not aware, the White House obviously puts on tremendous. It's a big deal at Christmas time. It's all the decorating and all the state events and they invite thousands of people come through the White House at Christmas. And gingerbread houses. And gingerbread and, and cookies. Right. It is the people's house, you know, regardless. Oh, it's the people's house. And there's nothing, I mean, Christmas is a wonderful time. I don't care who you are. It's just, it's a happy time. And it should be. I think it's the time where we need to put aside partisanship. But I'm humbled by the opportunity to have been selected to come to Washington and work in the White House in two capacities. They have a large team that helps decorate the White House. If you've ever seen it on any of the documentaries, uh, PBS often does that, and they will show all the presidents from Obama to Bush to now, you know, everyone, all the, the White House has been decorated for decades. And um, typically there's a, their staff and then there's the volunteer team. And in this particular case, they choose from what I've been told, two representatives from each state. Now, there may be more, but I think there's real, from what I read, two representatives from each state that are part of the larger volunteer team. And I was blessed enough and fortunate enough to be chosen. That is huge. That's a huge deal. So like there's going to be two from Alaska and two from Hawaii and two from Alabama. I know. What I want to know is, did they like (laughs) drag out the old broken cardboard boxes like me and like dig through the the newspaper (laughs) and go like, oh, here's the the broken Mary head off the main... <laughs> they Tiffany really glue her back together. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a little bit. Mary Scott. It's a little fancy. <laughs> no, actually, it's here's some here's some another interesting factoid. They have what makes it really special is the White House through the social secretary and the chief usher and the park service and whoever else is involved. They solicit professionals to design their Christmas card. Is designed by somebody they. Everyone sends in, whoever they get to do it, sends in samples, and then they choose something that's been hand-drawn. There are ornaments that are juried, 
and there's small companies, usually not big national companies, not like a, you know, a Walmart, anybody like that, but these are individuals who help design the national ornaments. So it's juried art. Juried art. Yes. And they're chosen based on, they have to submit all this. So I had to submit examples of work and because there's two parts of it. There's the aesthetic decorating side. So I had to really, and this is something I told Rachel, and Rachel's like, what did you do? <laughs> I had to reach way back into my bag of tricks. Now I'm about to say something that most people go, really, this is what you used to do? In my prior life, long before food, even though I was trained that way, but long before food became my livelihood, uh, when we lived in Florida, I owned a chain of high-end juvenile interior design showrooms, which is a side of my life that most people don't know because they only know me from my handwork that is edible. But I'm a very right brain person. And so when we lived in Jacksonville and also in Melbourne, Florida, I had the pleasure of decorating thousands of babies' rooms and kids that were born to the Jacksonville Jaguars and the people that owned Winn-Dixie and people that you know and people that you don't know. But it was so that I had to go into my, my portfolio of work that I did there. Well, and this I- does not surprise me because I have <laughs> been amazing. standing at table at a, t- at a table with appetizers that you've prepared and people just looking at it and saying, this looks like art. Hmm. The way that you, you know, the attention to detail on each canapé, on each cookie, on each, you know, whatever it is, and then how it's arranged that's very sweet. Yes. Yeah. It takes it takes a lot of people. And yes, there has to be sort of the ringleader, but it takes a group, which is a segue back into the White House, is that it takes a large group of people who are willing to give of their time. And I don't care. It's a volunteer thing. Yes, it's a juried process. I had to send work in. And then I, and then I submitted. There was an area that said, tell us about your other skills. Like, okay. <laughs> okay. It just so happens. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't have many, but I only have a few ba- I only have a few tricks in my bag. So I said, well, my other skill happens to be food, hmm. which is, they just asked. They said, what other skills do you have? So in whatever other skills you have, you have to submit examples of your so work. So they kind of want Swiss army knives of volunteers. Pretty <laughs> much. Yes. Okay. Like who is a Houdini and what else can you do? <laughs> so I threw that in there and they said, so when the, um, I, actually got the call that I was chosen the day before I left for Europe. And I had to scurry and put a whole bunch of other things together. And they said, well, we saw your work. So bring your chef clothes as well. Well, I do yes. want to get to before before we close, I want to hear it's so fascinating to me how anybody runs a restaurant and cooks the food, the business side and the logistics of it. Mm-hmm. It just seems like such a demanding industry. So if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into it, what the eaves was like, what was your philosophy of food? What did you even cook? Do you want to know the real story? Absolutely. The real, real story? The real deal. Okay. So I'm going to give you the real story. All of this is kind of tied together. Prior to the restaurant, I owned a cooking school called The Budding Chef, which I still do. And it was intended to really teach children because I believe you bend that tree while it's young, to use a biblical term, and it'll do whatever you want. Mm. Um, And I just think that if you start with kids and you teach them the love of what they're putting in their bodies, it'll be good for them. It's really good for their parents. You know, especially with a lot of working parents. So I had budding chef was going along. And then my lovely husband came home one day and said, guess what? I'm resigning from my company and I'm running for Congress. So <laughs> as a wife of now 35 years, 
I said, oh, okay. And as any wife, you kind of have to step up when your spouse makes a life, kind of a life altering change, you step up. And I had thought about the restaurant business. It is a very difficult business. If you've ever heard anybody say it's a difficult business, it's harder than you even really think about it. And I'm coming from that world. It's tougher. And just because you can cater, you can do other things does not make you equipped Hmm. to run a restaurant. It's life altering. It's like the, it's a jealous lover. It wants all of you all the time and doesn't care what else is going on in your life. It wants you Hmm. constantly. And my philosophy was I'm a very sort of type A person. I only want to do something the right way. And if I'm not going to do it the right way, you might as well not do it. And my husband and I used to have many a battle. He's very bottom line, which I get because it's a business. But his philosophy was you don't have to use the best. Why not? Da, da, da. Look at Kraft. They took great cheese and added oil and they became Kraft. Look at Hershey. They took Belgian chocolate and watered it down and added milk to it and became Hershey's. His point was, you don't, why do you have to do it that way? And I said, do you have to have the local green beans? Yeah. Do you have to have the best? I was like, it's going to be right or it's not going oh, to that. be. Man, I love and that. And we fought constantly to almost to the day that I retired from the restaurant, which is another whole story. But um, I'm glad I stuck to my guns mm. because quality never goes out of style and, and your reputation precedes you. That's why even now... The business that I do, I don't have to worry about anything. And my clients don't have to worry because they know that I'm going to do it right because Mm. I'm not willing to compromise. Um, And I think a lot of times people do compromise for a number of reasons. Um, Yes, I understand it's business, but the restaurant business is it's it's a tough one. You have to be really be ready to dig your heels in. And it's especially difficult as a female chef for a number of reasons. Young male chefs that you employ as your sous, they have a lot of moxie and they think they run things. And so they tend to see a female chef um, and I'm going to throw something else in. They also see an African-American female chef and they automatically assume that you're going to do barbecue or you're going to do soul food. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) There are some very successful people, way more successful than I am in that genre because you asked about what did you prepare? My menus were very globally inspired. Mm. So when people say, what kind of restaurant are you? Are you Mexican or Chinese? And I think that that's very typical in this marketplace because there's so much specific niche dining that when I opened, there and wasn't- you had a fusion menu. I had everything. Yes. And there, was, there weren't that many fine dining restaurants. I probably would have been easier if I hadn't chosen that path. And I had gone a different direction, but I wanted to elevate the dining experience here in Huntsville. And I was a little bit before my time, I think. But when I moved from Madison into Huntsville, the location of the restaurant, another interesting factoid, happened to be the old location where all the original African-American businesses were located in Huntsville. Didn't know that until after the fact. So it was kind of unusual that I happened to, you know, I guess God sent me to that location, but... The Eves was a labor of love. It was a lot of work. I met a lot of incredible people. I worked with some incredible people. My clients were from all walks of life. And I always tried to put a bit of me on the plate. And I wanted them to leave knowing that somebody cared, no matter what the event was, cared about their experience. Was I the low-cost provider? Absolutely not. And I'm not apologetic for it. If you want it right, it's going to cost you. Mm. 
But I always felt like, and I was raised this way, always deliver more than what the client expects. Did I make mistakes? Lots of them. Did I course correct? Yes. Did some of those mistakes early on cost me business? Sure. Some episodes ago, we interviewed Vicki Gazelshop, who talked about transitions, professional transitions, and mm-hmm. how hard that can be. And one mm-hmm. of the things I remember when the Eves was closing, and I was mm-hmm. so sad about that. But you were transitioning into being an executive chef, and Chef Merle, I, I so admire how you took you, you took a road that was available to you mm-hmm. and continued to be successful. And you didn't, you didn't fold. You didn't, you didn't, you know, you didn't bow. You did, but you said, all right, well, you know, I'm going to go and do it this way now. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it takes a lot of bravery. I think it takes a lot of creativity and I think it takes the kind of moxie that you clearly have to make a transition that's needed for yourself, for your family, for mm-hmm. whatever reason, and go in a, and go in the direction that you should go. And clearly you should, because you're so successful as Chef Merle. Well, thank you for saying that. That's very kind words. And, and I'll tell you that when I made the decision to close the restaurant, you would have thought there was a crack in the universe. Mm. Because there were people, a lot of our clients were like, why are you doing this? Because typically when a restaurant closes, it's because either wasn't successful or something happened or whatever the circumstances are. In my particular case, it was a choice. I chose to do that um, for a number of reasons. I felt like I had done what I wanted to do with the restaurant. And, you know, I'll be quite honest, I'm not 30 anymore. It's a very, 18 hours a day, seven days a week for all those years. It was it was tiring. And I said, it's time for me to do something else. And quite honestly, my mother, who's now 91, I needed to be more accessible to her because I know, you know, as your parents get older, things change with them. They can go from well to not well in a blink. And the type of operation I had didn't lend itself to just switching off the light and walking away. Because like, how many times have you been to a restaurant, you go in in the beginning and it's great and the food is wonderful. And then you go back a you know, maybe you don't go right away and then you go back again and you go, something's missing. Why isn't this as good as I remember? Generally, it's because somebody lifted their hand. Mm. Somebody lifted their hand and is asleep at the switch. And I was never going to be a casualty. I was a very present force. It was a very chef-driven restaurant. And some executive chefs are more administrative. I was a working, so I was on the line working hand in hand, elbow to elbow, way more services than probably I should have with my staff, sometimes almost to myself to a detriment. But I think, you know, when you're in the weeds, you don't really realize how much you're actually doing until you step away from it. But while I was running all those operations and the catering and the cooking school, I also had what I'm also a personal chef, which is what I'm doing now. I had clients that I was doing their weekly dinner service for them. So I would prep and then deliver meals that they would have for the rest of the week. So on my, the tiny little times that the restaurant was closed, I would, you know, be back in the kitchen when no one else was there prepping all these meals for all these people. So that sort of transition I was planning and it was already in the works So when I decided to, when I finally made the decision to close the restaurant, which was actually, most people don't know, it was about two years before I actually did. Because starting a business, and it's going to sound strange, is actually easier than closing one. Hmm. Because when you close it, it's turned into this much larger 
like ball of string and you kind of have to unravel it and you have to figure out, especially if you're trying to go out on top, like how am I going to transition? And I think what I'm doing now as a personal chef was exactly the right thing that I should be doing. Merle, you have so much just business success and hard-won wisdom. I'd like to close by just asking you, what's your best advice for young women entrepreneurs, business people? What have you learned that you could distill into some, some good advice? A few things. Number one, pray before you do anything. Seek wise counsel. Now, a lot of people are going to say, why is she saying pray? That's a moral compass. It's very easy to be swayed, to cut corners and to make choices for the almighty dollar that maybe aren't as righteous as maybe they should be. I mentioned earlier, finding what you're, what really you're good at and work towards that, not compromising, seeking wise counsel. I think a lot of people don't do that before they get into business. Another thing about business that everyone should do is you, this is going to sound odd, you really need an exit strategy before you begin. Hmm. You need to think about the end game and work your way backwards. So I probably could have done that a little better. Maybe I would have avoided a few of the early pitfalls. And you're going to make mistakes. Mistakes are going to happen. I think now if I were to go back into the restaurant business, there are certain mistakes I wouldn't make again. I would hit the ground running a lot harder because I have that experience. And I think young, and when I say people going into business, they don't have to be youngsters. They could just be a grown adult who's maybe starting something for the first time. They really need to sit and count the cost. And I don't necessarily mean financially. I meant the cost of throwing yourself into this. You know, and, and I guess I'm very blessed and fortunate now to be able to be on the other side of it because I chose to do what I'm doing now and I'm using my skill set a little differently. You know, maybe I don't have the brick and mortar that I used to, but that's okay. And if I had it, I wouldn't have had the time or the extreme pleasure of being able to go to the White House and do what I'm doing because I couldn't have walked away this time of year. There's absolutely no way I could have been able to do that. So I know that this is the right thing at the right time. And that's what you have to find. Oh, Merle, this has been such a great interview. I, I have just, I've learned so much and I just consider you really just a, just a special friend. And I'm so Thank grateful you. you spent this time with us. We wish you very safe travels to DC and we can't wait to hear how it goes. So Executive Chef Merle, you have told me the best way to reach you is by phone because you're always cooking. So you can find Merle the old fashioned way by phone at 256 617 2910 and by email at evesinfo2 at gmail.com. That's E A V E S info, the numeral two at gmail.com. You have been listening to Bell Curve Podcast with Mary Scott Hunter and Rachel Briers. Our co-host, Elizabeth Shears, will be back next time. And you're not going to want to miss our next episode. We have another fascinating guest who grew up in Birmingham and is now big time in New York City. So you'll have to come back next week to find out who and what that's about. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Bell Curve Pod. And you can email us any thoughts or questions. We are Bell Curve Podcast. That's bell with an E at gmail.com. If you like us, please consider telling someone about us or leaving a review. You can do that anonymously if you like. If you're coming to us from AL.com, maybe check out some of our other episodes. Y'all have an amazing week. Thanks for joining us.